without. <laughs> okay. Well, then I'm going to start this off. And um, so, so I've been doing it this way. Andrea Haverkamp, welcome back to Labor Wave Radio. Always a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited. It's weird to say welcome back to you because you started this show. Well, you know, I would say I would say we kind of jointly started it. Uh, you know, I was a rank and file member, had the idea of like, why don't we have our own union news program to sort of compete with our public university's own propaganda machine, which was their Orange Media Network, as it was called at Oregon State University. Yeah. And I was reflecting on um, how cool of an idea that was for you as an organizer to encourage and help foster making a podcast for a union itself, I was reading that Jacobin article on uh, the labor beat in journalism and how in the 30s and 40s, there was a wellspring of radio programs that unions themselves put on for their workers. Mm. And it made me think of this as, uh, you know, I'm almost 100 years later trying to revive that spirit. But yeah, it's always a pleasure to be back. It's been a while. Yeah, I guess um, we're already kind of getting ahead of ourselves, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I've thought of this idea about like building union culture and how union culture is really something that is lacking big time. But also like, I don't think we do a good job of like focusing and emphasizing on it enough, you know, like, okay, for a practical example, a lot of like workers ask me about just places that they can look for ideas on unions, theories on unions, and then even just like good movies and stuff on unions. And when they talk about good movies, the only things like it's kind of sad, but it's like, okay, there's Nate Wan, there's Norma Ray, Salt of the Earth, which is actually an incredibly boring movie, but you know, still good, I guess. And uh, now more recently, sorry to bother you. It's like, wow, there's like nothing. Yeah. I wonder why major media corporations don't create more. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's up to us to kind of make that culture, which is, which is hard when, when the printing presses are largely shut down and most comms departments in big unions seem really focused on a polished social media presence. 100%. Before we recorded, we kind of talked about how we've been wanting for a while. We're both staff organizers for different unions and have been organizing together for a long time. And it would just be kind of fun to have like a fireside chat, like just talking union shop and just riffing. And so in that spirit, we got a question from a listener, and I thought the question itself could help like kind of open up, you know, the rest of our conversation today and take us different places. Let's do it. Uh, this question is from Joshua Robinson, who wrote, Dear Labor Wave Radio, I've been listening for a long time and love the podcast. Thank you, Joshua. That's very nice to hear. Your most recent episode gave me a lot to think about. I'm thinking the episode they talk about is the one that we did with Joe Burns, on reviving the strike. That's the episode they're referencing. Joshua writes, in particular, at one point, Joe Burns introduced the differences between private and public sector labor theory. He indicated that there was a lot of old theory around this, and I'm interested in reading more. I wonder if you or Joe himself could point me towards some text. I'm organizing in higher education in the UK, so this is very relevant to me. Some of the largest and highest profile strikes in the UK in the last decade have been in higher education but they never seem to have achieved much. Other organizers and I have this sense that we can maybe push through some small positive changes locally, but have no real clue how to achieve the more structural change. In solidarity, Josh, he, him. Okay, so I did reach out to Joe to ask, 
just his response to the question about where's their good, you know, readings and ideas on public sector unionism. And the title that Joe Burns recommended for you, Joshua, is Success While Others Fail, Social Movement Unionism and the Public Workplace by author Paul Johnston. Uh, so that came out in the early 90s. But the other place I would think is that, honestly, Joe Burns' own work, his second book is called Strike Back. I can't remember the subtitle. It's something on like, militant unionism is the way forward, right? <laughs> his main thesis is you got to strike. And even in the public sector, illegal strikes, forms of direct action that were not necessarily according to the law are the ways that we built unions, you know, both private and public sector. And so Strike Back is uh, really excellent work. And it goes through this whole history of strike waves, particularly in the 50s and 60s with teachers unions, where teachers unions had collective bargaining was illegal just across the board for most uh, public sector workers, including teachers. And in order to win the rights to even enter collective bargaining, these workers had to go on a lot of different strikes, as well as participate in forms of like work to rule, de facto strikes, you know, slow down, sick outs, a lot of creative tools there of direct action. So, so that's what I would say. And then there's also the Labor Notes book, How to Jumpstart Your Union, that's about the Chicago Teachers Union. And uh, I don't necessarily think that that book goes into like the differences between public sector strategy and private sector, but it is a very like close case study on how a public sector union revived their labor union and like turned it into a fighting local. So thanks for the question, Joshua. And with that question in mind, Andrea, I'm kind of wondering, like both you and I have organized in both private and public sector unions and what do you think is like the biggest difference for you, at least as an organizer? Yeah, yeah, that's this is such a fun question because I'm not uh, super well versed in the theory, uh, but right now I am organizing in both public sector and private sector uh, healthcare. And, you know, there's some things that uh, from a practical sort of um, external organizer approach, there's some things that are clearly very different, right? Like the different laws, the ability to, um, here in Washington state, there is, you know, the ability to card check through with the Washington state public employment relations commission and like easily file to add unrepresented employees to an existing unit or form a new unit. You know, it, there's a, you know, there's different protections and laws that all gets really technical but at the end of the day um some of the big things that i can think of is is who you are able to leverage when you do go public and then it depends on the public sector right but but for some public sector unions there's not really clear who is the customer i'm thinking of mm -hmm. the unions here that represent city and county employees for king for you know i'm in seattle so for city of seattle and king county who do you get to rally behind public planners, right? Yeah. Like, you know, so it's, it's in that sense, you know, it's really easy to identify and do a work stoppage or identify who are you're going to be your community partners in healthcare, right? It's, it's clearly the patients, their family, the community, that those folks in the public sector. However, we've seen over the past 40, 50 years, that sort of business model be, sucked into the public sector. So, 
in some ways, there's just a whole lot of overlap, whether it's a library, whether it's a university or a college, or even public sector healthcare, there are patients, there's people who spend money, who come in and out. So in terms of rallying that support, there's sometimes a difference and not, you know, Amazon as a company has a brand image and has a lot of ability to shape and market public image. City of Seattle does not quite have as much. However, cities will, they're bad bosses, just like these companies are. So in a way, you know, there's some, there's some minutiae that are different. There's some leverage and some communication that might be different. A lot of the regular stuff feels like there's just so much overlap too, where I get, I get stuck in, you know, where do I file and, and, and all that. What about for you as an organizer in public and private, where, where do you see some of the overlaps and differences? Well, I think what you're saying, I agree with in that, like the targets can often shift and change because in the private sector, the target is pretty obvious. It's the boss, right? Like the boss is the target. That's the employer. You got the name, you know, their address direct and clear, but in the public sector, I do think you're right that sometimes your targets are unclear uh, because a lot of the targets are political targets. I'm actually reminded of like, okay, so listeners that have listened to the show for a while know that you and I started organizing together in Oregon at a public university, Oregon State University. And my experience there, where you were a rank and file member, what we often ran into was when we were trying to leverage demands, the shifting poles of the discourse was always a complication where we would say things like, look, this university is greedy and their administrators are overpaid and they're just a bunch of bureaucrats. And like, that's the problem. And then people would be like, and this was not just like fence straddlers or whatever. This is like union folks would be like, yeah, but the governor has a say over the budget for public education and higher ed. They need we need more revenue and we need to lobby our legislators to get more revenue so that there's a bigger piece of the pie and we can demand more of that pie once the state comes in and intervenes. And they weren't totally wrong. It was true that you couldn't just single out the president of the university and the board of directors and all that nonsense. You did have to think about the state machinery. I often found it frustrating because I did think that it kind of let the president and his lackeys off the hook a little bit, you know, because yeah. <laughs> um, they could submit a budget where they're paid less. Yeah. Like they don't need to make <laughs> more than half a million dollars a year in salary. That's nonsense. But they didn't have all the money in the world. It was true that their money, like their coffers were constrained by political machinery. And because of that, depending on the issue, you might have a different target that you really had to focus on. And sometimes we were kind of under pressure to go to the Capitol and, you know, push for legislative packages that allocated more funds to higher ed, to levy taxes in different ways. So that's that's the main place where I see it is that the targets are a little different. And I think that's going to have, you know, force you to have different tactics at the same time, depending on what your goals are. Uh, Joe Joe Burns actually, I think, does a good job of making this pretty clear in his two books. His forthcoming one is called Class Struggle Unionism, which is like a primer on how to get there. You know, like, how do we do this big militant strike stuff? But he basically says that in the private sector, the way you win a strike is you 
cause economic damage to the employer and you generate worker solidarity. That's it. You just harm the profit margin of the boss, create worker solidarity. Now he says in the public sector, the objectives of a strike, you're not necessarily trying to always hurt the profit margin of the boss because actually going on strike in the public sector sometimes is good for the employer because it saves them money. Now it's not money that they have to spend anymore that, that was already allocated to them. So it's really more of a political strike just by virtue of the target. You have to figure out how to strike to get politicians in line, community supporters to back you up. You know, it's just a different, it's the same tactic as a strike, but the way the strike is animated changes um, in its objectives. No, I, I, I love that. I'm thinking about uh, sanitation workers and city workers that when you shut that down, you know, it, 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 it's really the whole city and the whole, you know, defining the circle of the public, you know, has some sort of stake in it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it's, a, if it's a restaurant, if it's a Jimmy John's, it's really hard to tell, you know, how many people are really going to going to have a stake and a, and a back in that. And that and that kind of morphs into how public sector unions still have a lot of a lot of support and have a, have a high density. We've already seen some post Janus decision world changes in, in public unions and, and strength and approach. But I think that that part of why public sector unions, right, like here, uh, you know, some of the some of the deciders are going to be like the city council and the mayor here in Seattle that oversee whether, you know, all the different budgets that that go on. Ultimately, they they have a role. So like that leverage is pretty clear. Where then it gets to start to be murky is is big unions in their sort of unholy, I should say unholy marriage. It's It's a sort of relationship they have. I'm not sure if they're married. But big labor and uh, and politics have become um, in places with high un- high union density, or really anywhere, partially influenced, and this is another sort of arm. I don't know. I don't know of any big union that doesn't have a political organizing department, specifically political organizing, right. to both try to make the terrain better for private unions, where they kind of are just free to roam very unaccountable. So that's another thing. Like the accountability to the public for private people is is very different mm-hmm. than public sector unions to their public sector workers. Right. But uh you know trying to get people on for example a city council and a mayorship who would yell down down the sort of hierarchy of command like I guess don't union bust our our city and, and state workers or or mm-hmm. you know give them a fair deal or you know don't let this get to a strike. But then that creates some sort of different perverse incentives that I'm not a political organizer. So the machinations of that are honestly beyond me, but that that's another thing where for unions in their approach to the public and private, it, it gets hard, you know, at the university, it's, you know, you can already see where it's like, okay, well, do we start endorsing some candidates for the local house of representatives race, for example, and maybe this house of representatives for our district where our university and our our graduate workers are maybe this person will introduce into the legislature the bill that we need that will put a cap on university employees or make a democratic process for a board of trustees right and then is that going to pay off if we donate them fifty thousand dollars (laughs) right you know are they going to really back us 
we and then public sector unions and private sector unions start to make this political calculus of of donations and backing and endorsements and canvassing, you know. But as as an organizer, as a rank and file worker, those things are, you know, might be on your mind if you're looking for what union you will, you know, unionize and and organize with who will support you, or if you're starting your own sort of independent worker movement, you know, um, thinking about the levers of power is because for every ounce of time and energy and money you spend on political organizing, that takes away from workplace organizing because you just don't have the energy to do all the things all the time with all the people. Yeah, I mean, I think it's no surprise that I tend to focus on the workplace <laughs> and I really yeah. think it's more <laughs> primary than the political machinations of, and electoral strategies for victory. I, you know, we did an episode recently with Marianne Garneau of Organizing Work, and she has a really great article on just this subject, on this topic of how there's a tendency amongst leftist and union supporters to think that unions have a role, uh, but their role is very minimal, and their role is separate from creating political change, because politics happens in the arena well, politics happens in the electoral arena specifically, not in the workplace. And, you know, I, I just think it's kind of got it backwards. Like, I actually think that if you can build up power and muscle to build, beat the bosses on their own terrain, particularly in the private sector, you know, that is political organizing, that is political work. And like, why outsource all the skills and strength that you've built to some outside group, to some political party with a big tent so that they can then take on the rest of the fight. It makes no sense to me. Uh, and it also doesn't match union history like at all. Going back to Joe Burns, his books are very clear in providing a historical record of how, even if you're a big believer in collective bargaining and you think that that's the primary way that we get wins from the employer, well, the way we got collective bargaining was through militant strike activity in both the private and public sector. And in the public sector, the record is extremely clear. Like without going on illegal strikes and breaking labor law, we would not have gotten the ability to even negotiate contracts on behalf of public sector employees. So yeah, I think they've got it backwards. But you know, like what you're saying about the overlap, I do agree there too, and that a lot of the methods for organizing are kind of the same, I think, in that like we were saying before we recorded, most of organizing is just talking to people uh, and just being willing to talk to people a lot and pester them, nudge them, not just through text and phone calls, but trying to get in front of them face-to-face -face yeah. somehow to be like, hey, where have you been the past week? So that's the biggest thing, right? Is like public sector unionism, private sector unionism, the organizing approach really does need to center around relationships and conversations and just getting workers to talk to other workers. That, that's such a hurdle, you know? Yeah. You can get all into this theory and these big eye picture ideas and they're important. They shouldn't be like, you know, just abandoned completely. But at the end of the day, your first step is really just talking to your coworkers and finding out what their issues are. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, 90 percent of organizing at the very least is having motivating, deep listening conversations, building trust, building real relationships 
if you are all going to stick your neck out together at the same time, that is what strength in numbers is. Uh, when I talk about this with workers, I always try to, you know, pose that question of, you know, what makes an organizing conversation different than a regular conversation? In this hypothetical example, you and your coworker both have coffee in front of you. Maybe you're both on break. What is going to make this conversation an organizing conversation versus a conversation? And it is a goal and it's a purpose and it's that you're building trust towards something between each other, right? Uh, that, that, that bring you together in order to shift the balance of power, right? There's, there's a certain approach. There's, you know, is it a five-step conversation? Is it six? Is it seven? Do you abandon the steps and just focus on having real authentic conversations, human being to human being, um, you know, that, that is, uh, the, the jury's out on that, <laughs> you know, the, the best number of stuff, but, but I think that's at the core and, and having many of those and having a lot of them, you know, a lot of people don't even need to take a class to make that happen. I find that there are some people who just are very, very good at having conversations that bring someone to help them do a thing or that move you to act. But it's also something that can be learned and can yeah. be practiced. Uh, you know, I know some people who've been just brilliant workplace leaders who at the start were like, I'm an introvert. I, you know, I don't really like to talk to people. And then by the end, they are almost like uh, an organizing conversation, uh, you know, hit person, right? Like, like yeah. they come out and, you know, when they do talk, they just absolutely bring people on board. I emphasize that a lot too, when I teach people how, when I teach workers, how to have one-on-one -on -one conversations is how much of it is a philosophy about change and people's potential. Like you have to enter into the conversations, one, expecting that it's not going to be the only time you talk to this person. It's a relationship that you're building, not necessarily one where you like are best buddies by the end of it or ever, but you're still like building a real foundation a real relationship, human to human. But the other part of it is going in with the attitude and conviction that people can change. And if you don't think people can change, like their opinions can't change, their perspectives, their behaviors, well, you know, organizing is probably just not for you. Like, I just don't, I think there's a lot of people that are just convinced that like working class people are irredeemable. There's no change. There's no possibilities. Like go, you know, go join a political club. Like get the hell out of here. Because that's just not going to work as an organizing attitude. You really do have to like believe that people are capable of coming to different ideas, uh, becoming that. receptive to it. So I try to ground it in that. And I think what you're saying too is like, you know, there are some people that hear the idea of like, maybe, maybe some people could just toss off the methods and the steps, just not worry about it and just be real. And I know there's a lot of like trained professional organizers that are like screaming about the prospect of like, forget about the craft, you know, but the reality is, is like, look, people can learn, the skills are important, but I do also teach that at the beginning, if you're awkward and stumbling and you're just getting all preoccupied, trying to remember the methods of like issues, agitate, educate, whatever, like your biggest goal is making a real connection with people and just acting fucking normal. Uh, just... I've never seen that added, but that should act normal because, you know, it's like, 
you don't want to come off as a salesperson. And I worry too many that sometimes people get can accidentally fall into the trap of focusing too much on that. And, you know, is there a science that we've perfected more than within the French Revolution or in, uh, you know, were they having six step conversations to bring people in or focusing on that? Yeah, not a, it's not a one to one scenario, but but you know what I mean? It's like it's like I, I think that in human history, various languages, people have organized, people have created change, people have come together to win real things. 5,000 years ago, 3,000, 2,000, you know, it's, it's a human, it's just being a human, like you said, just being a real person. I don't, I, I, it's hard to put that into words, but you have to, in your heart of hearts, when you're having these conversations, and as you build more people to have this in their hearts, believe, yes, like, I love what you said, that A, people can change, and B, that the power dynamics in your workplace can change too. Yeah. And that that you have a stake together and that you actually do want to hear about their weekend. Yeah. I mean, your organizing skills and methods will get sharper the more practice you get. And that's what I try to say is not to like abandon the steps of an organizing conversation necessarily, but to know that like there are really guidelines on how to make how how to make your conversation most effective. And in the beginning, you're going to need practice to get better at it. So like really just try to focus on having the best possible conversation with this person you have and making a real connection. The more you do it, the better you'll get. It'll sharpen your skills and you'll become more effective. And like at this juncture, I have no idea how many one-on-one conversations I've had. It's a lot. Uh, And I don't even think about the methods anymore. They just come naturally to me. But what it looks like to an outside observer is me just shooting the shit with somebody uh, and just being myself because that's how it is. Like, I'm still me. I still have my same personality in these conversations. I just know, you know, in the back of my head that I'm trying to get to a particular outcome and I'm using these methods to get there. That's just what happens when you practice. You know, it's like learning a new language. At the beginning, mm-hmm. you're going to have trouble saying hello and what your name is. But the more you do it, the more it'll come to you naturally and you'll get better at it. So, if you're a worker trying to like start organizing and you're really concerned about those one-on-ones and they make you really nervous, try your best, like get yourself composed, <laughs> take deep breaths, relax, and just be normal. Like, yeah, can't stress that enough. I, uh, I took that uh, organizing for power through, uh, was it Rosa Luxemburg Institute with Jay yeah. McAlevey this summer? And she put it really well and it really motivated me is that we got to start practicing having these conversations and we got to get practice and we got to get good as organizers and then to get more people to be able to organize and make this a muscle that we all know how to flex. Because if we're going to not only win in our workplace, but win in our community and win against global capital and win against climate change, there is going to need to be a lot of conversation. We're going to have to relate to each other because in in capitalism, there's a logic of competition. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, a lot of people's default sort of that's what we're all taught by default, right, is that we're individuals. I just got to look out for myself. You know, I had to unlearn that. And that only happened through people having great conversations with me. You know, I wasn't born into a labor union, you know, and not many of us are. And in fact, the number of workers who have an experience are dwindling, who A, have experience working in a unionized workplace, 
B, working in a unionized workplace with a good labor union that is really fighting for them and that involves them democratically, and or three, forming a new union starting from step one, which is, wow, things really do suck around here. We should do something about it. Yeah. And that's, I think, the powerful, the, the, the potential of the labor movement to train people to get involved and to, and to have these conversations so that after we win democracy in our workplace, we can extend to the community and extend to the globe and extend to wrangling in climate change and uh, making our unions places that we really find that liberatory potential in. Now, bringing up McAlevey, I have to ask you this question because it's been on my mind a lot lately, but your opinion on the idea of the organic leader. Now, I'm just going to say, like, I have all these training materials and I've always taught about identifying organic leaders. And a lot of that I know has been influenced by McAlevey specifically because not, not initially from her own writing and speeches, but the person that really brought me in organizing and kind of taught me the skills and methods I learned later was like very, very directly connected to McAlevey and like organized alongside her. And then when I read No Shortcuts, I realized like, wow, this is, this is all the same stuff. Um, so I got a lot of that exposure, but I've increasingly grown skeptical of the idea of organic leaders, not the idea that organic leaders don't exist or something like that but more the notion that it is super important in the beginning of a campaign to recruit organic leaders to your organizing committee. That's kind of the lesson that McAlevey teaches is like map out the workplace, find the organic leaders. If you don't have the organic leaders, you're going to lose, right? And I think it kind of contradicts a little bit this other, this prior notion that we just talked about that organizing is about seeing the potential in people and their ability to change and helping guide them there. Like, this idea of the organic leader, I think, can be very flat and very static. And the more I think about it, and the more I think about my own experience, the more I realize I've rarely had campaigns that were successfully won or like pushed forward by these so-called organic leaders. In fact, a lot of the folks that I've seen really become like great union organizers and leaders, like workplace leaders, were not organic leaders in the first place. They were just passionate about change and knew that something needed to be different about their working experience. And over time, they developed into organic leaders. So that's where I'm at. Like, I'm yeah. starting to think that actually, it's probably just as necessary, if not more necessary, to focus on developing people into leaders rather than just this static notion of like recruiting the organic leaders that already exist and bringing them on board. And the other thing I think about the organic leaders, part of the reason I'm, again, more skeptical of it, uh, there's two reasons. One is that I actually do think that organic leaders are smaller in number than we imagine. Like I think a lot of workplaces are very fractured socially. People don't talk to each other. There's, okay, I'll tell you a like, story here. This industrial laundry campaign I've been working on, I can't tell you how many times people do not know the names of anybody else that they work with. Like almost everybody doesn't know each other's names. They only know like, oh yeah, that person works on that machine, but I never talk to them because it's too loud. The machines are always on during break. You only get 30 minutes and I'm just going to my car and I'm eating. And then I clock in and then there's not like a party after work. I'm not going to the bar 
with anybody. Nobody fucking knows each other. Like there's no organic leaders here because nobody, there's no social dynamics in this workplace. It's just not there. A hospital, nurses that have been around for many years. Okay. There's probably organic leaders there, but that's not representative of a lot of workplaces. So I think one, the idea that there's all these organic leaders around is a little suspect. But the other thing I think is that under capitalism, what makes somebody an organic leader often is their work ethic. If they're a hard worker and they do the job well, they gain respect of their coworkers and that makes them an organic leader. They've been there for longer. They know how to do the job. They're respected by their coworkers by virtue of their work ethic. Well, like, okay, let's just be honest. The people that survive the workplace long enough to get the tenure and the skills and the respect necessary through the work ethic are often those that are best at following the rules. They're the most obedient workers. And a lot of times they're very risk averse. Validly so, it's not like a criticism of them, but in practice, they're more conservative. And like the idea then is to get the most conservative and like neutral and unwilling people to be on the committee to lead the fight against capital. Like, I just don't understand this idea. Like it, something's not working. So that's my rant. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm thinking in my life, like the first thing I came back to is uh, there's this punk song that I really like that, uh, that is, uh, you know, they're just talking about, you know, how messed up the music industry is. And they have this line where they're like, it's all still high school politics, you know? And I'm thinking about the workplaces I've had, the shitty jobs I've had, who the VIP, very important, very influential people were that someone might read as an organic leader were simply the most attractive, straightest, you know, like, uh, like, quote unquote, like most popular person in the workplace that kind of called the shots because they were either buddy, buddy with management, or that the the implicit bias in humans to who wins homecoming king and queen. For me, it was not I never saw anyone up there who, who I was inspired by I saw people that a majority of people uh, there were developed a mythos around them. There's like, so I think that there is something to really dissect and how many, how much of this is kind of rooted in racial, gender, class dynamics that do exist in our workplaces where the people who are the most important and the most influential can often sometimes have winds at their back that don't necessarily translate into moving their coworkers into real sustained action for change. On the other hand, sometimes you are organizing in a workplace and everyone's like, oh yeah, Mickey is always on fire and always has the guts to stick up to management and people listen when they talk because they're experienced and they are good at what they do. Yeah. Sometimes it's, I just don't think that in every campaign you're going to be able to go down with a pen and paper. The organic leader model kind of, and maybe in some way, neutralizes the idea that anyone and everyone has the keys to liberation yeah and that is conversations relationships and coming together in a strength and numbers approach to shift the balance of power everyone can participate and everyone can be a co-leader in that right like the lobby say we're all leaders right i mean and i guess that's where i land on this too is that i'm really just trying to say we need more nuance in this idea and this approach and i think the concern that i have with being so preoccupied trying to find the organic leaders is that one is we might misidentify the leaders like you're talking about. 
and misidentify them based on our own internal biases and often the association with leadership with masculinist traits. But two, we overlook people that have potential um, a lot of times. And this idea was coming to my mind more recently because I was going to start watching Norma Ray with some of these younger folks that are getting involved in organizing. And I started like just, you know, the movie is clearly like a Hollywood version of the real story. It was based on a real union campaigns. So I don't know how much it's accurate. But regardless, in the movie, Norma Ray is not an organic leader. Like, if you watch that movie and you're going to tell me that Norma Ray was the organic leader, you're lying. You're not watching it properly. <laughs> Norma Ray was known as like the town, like, I'm just not trying to be vulgar here, but she was like, the, she was promiscuous, right? She was not uh, respected in the workplace, in the factory, because she was known as a promiscuous woman with a foul mouth, and she was always getting into trouble. She was totally the opposite of what McAlevey teaches. You identify in organic leaders. This organizer connects with her, starts talking to her about the workplace, and takes the time throughout the process of the movie. You see them. There's also this kind of romantic undertone to their relationship. So, okay, maybe this organizer is being a bit of a sleaze bag, but regardless takes the time to develop Norma Ray into the leader that she becomes cascading to that great moment in the movie where you see her holding up the union sign and everybody in solidarity turns off their machines to be in support with Norma Ray. I mean, that's the movie. So she's not an organic leader. She develops into an organic, like, well, she develops into a leader, into a workplace leader. And I think throughout union history, probably a lot of the stories that we tell and the people that we romanticize are the same. I mean, I, I just think that they often didn't start that way. You said it yourself. You didn't, you weren't born into a labor family. I wasn't either. Uh, nobody in my family was a member of union. I don't really think I knew anything about them, like even a working definition of one. I had 16 years of service work experience, not a single one of those places I worked at were unionized. One of them I tried to unionize, failed, you know, but still tried. But that was, I was like 30 years old. <laughs> like I, that was so much life before I even started getting exposed to unions. And I think about this idea of organic leadership and like if Jane McAlevey, I'm not trying to knock on her. Like oh, I, think yeah. she, I think she has a great, a lot of great things to teach and everything. I'm just using her as an example. But if she had shown up in any of the workplaces that I worked at for 16 years, looking for organic leaders, she would have overlooked me every single time for all of those years of my life. And that's just what I'm reminded of is like, look, somebody had to like teach me this stuff. I have changed. My perspectives have changed. I'm a staffer now, so I can't say that I'm an organic leader in any workplace necessarily, but I've taken on a lot of the work necessary to be able to inspire and motivate people. That's what you're looking for. And I think if we're like so preoccupied looking for the, the leaders today, we often run the risk of overlooking the people that could become our leaders. And again, most of the folks that I've organized with, like workers that I've seen become really effective at what they do and how they inspire and motivate people, they were not organic leaders. I can maybe think of a handful of them that were, but the majority were not. 
I've heard a lot of stories of campaigns where the organic leader has a much cooler social life than sitting down in front of Excel and going through and making assessments and taking the time to call, then leave a voicemail, then send a follow-up text, then write down when and the day and time that they did that and any notes on that person, go to the next line, make a call, leave a voicemail, or when they do get the call, be on and ready to talk and try to move their coworker into action. How do you identify more of those people? Because that is what wins campaigns. If you have 10 people able to do that, I guarantee that having the coolest, most natural leader, the hip, the, you know, the person that everyone looks up to that when they say bar night is Thursday, they show up. That person's important and they play a role. Yeah. But you also need people who are going to sit down for two hours and make phone calls with you or hop in a car with you and go knock on doors, right? Like those people need to be happy and there isn't always an overlap. Yeah, I guess like I, to give the idea of organic leaders a little bit more credit than I've been giving it, I do think it is true that there are folks that are those kind of connectors and the danger and the risk in not recruiting them early on in your organizing campaign is that they can be recruited by the boss because the boss knows who the organic leaders are too. And they will bring those workers into the anti-union campaign and that can be really caustic. So it's not like the idea is, I'm not trying to say just abandon the notion entirely. I'm just worried that, you know, it is almost like its own version of a shortcut. We're looking for people that can wave a magic wand and win a campaign single-handedly. And like, that's, that's not going to happen. I I love this uh, genre. I love this thinking there's different, even there's many different genres. Like I know through my time working shitty jobs, there are many kinds of people who are popular, well-known and beloved for, for different reasons. There's the uh, there's the there's the good kids, right? The the ones that people go to because they're good at their job. Maybe management likes them. Maybe they got a future there. Those people kind of a coin flip. When you bring up the the union talk to them, they might bring it up to the boss the next day. Mm-hmm. You never know. Then there's the uh, the sort of bad boys of the group. You know, everyone likes them because they're smoking weed uh, <laughs> outside the store. But you know, as they deliver sandwiches. I used to work at Jimmy John's for a while, um, you know, and like everybody loves them, but uh, you know, if for for a very different reason, and perhaps a reason that might not actually be conducive to organizing your workplace, right? Like they have a reputation of flipping off the boss and talking back, and I'm thinking of one person in particular <laughs> in my old workplace, right? Like who uh, who I think if they were spearheading and championing, you know, I, I think people are like, well, we love you but we're not sure that you are our reliable narrator for uh, what needs to happen. Everyone know him and everyone would want to hang out with him, but uh, I'm not, I'm not sure. Right. There's, there's nuance. So there's many kinds of popular people, influential people, and also people who aren't popular and aren't influential and kind of to bring it full circle. It's about believing in every single person, believing in every single person in that unit and believing in their ability to change and develop. You did make me think of, it might seem like a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's on topic. This old essay that Murray Bookchin wrote called Listen Marxist. And there's this moment in the essay where he talks about uh, the working class as agents of revolutionary change. And he was very critical of this idea. 
And he goes on to say the reason that he was, well, amongst other reasons that he was really critical of the idea was he argued that the most revolutionary moments that people could embody, the people that had the most revolutionary potential were those people who disidentified as a worker, people that shed their identity as a worker and rejected the work ethic of capitalism and the imposition of capitalist logics, which is work till you die. Those were the people that had the most revolutionary potential. And he was like being inspired by, you know, the 60s kind of rebellions. And so he's looking at like beatniks and hippies and stuff, people that were like, fuck the system. And I don't even want to work this job anymore. And he saw them (laughs) as having, and the avant-garde, right? He thinks of them as having more revolutionary potential than the working class that fully embrace their working identity. And he said that working in a factory teaches you discipline, teaches you how to be subordinate and obedient to a manager and a foreman and it's very hierarchical logic. And so we're looking at these people that are supposed to be the agents of revolutionary change, but in reality, they're the most indoctrinated. So it's anyway, it just reminds me of this. I don't know that I necessarily agree with Bookchin. I, I actually, on that note, I think I don't agree. I do think the working class are the grave diggers of capitalism, but there's some interesting stuff there. And I think it's actually kind of in line with what we're talking about. It makes me think about theory of change. I heard critiqued. I'm, I'm trying to remember who exact did it. They were talking about like the John Stewart's of the world, the Stephen Colbert's, the video essayists of the world that are like, if we just present the most logical argument, if we just Michel Foucault the heck out of capitalism, we will uh, enlighten ourselves out of it, right? Like yeah. we will be intellectually superior to it. There's an onion video that's like, Trump voter feels regret after reading 500 pages of queer theory. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> right? right, you know, I think that there's, uh, yeah, I think that there's just no getting around that the the masses and in, in the numbers needed to make the monumental changes we need require all hands on deck and believing in every single person. On On that sort of point, I think we might be talking about it in another episode, but I was reading the book, The Death and Life of American Labor by Stanley. Stanley Aronowitz. But uh, they were talking about the need for more unions to engage, listen to, and have uh, radical imagination and public and like intellectualism in in them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that might be something that kind of merges those two topics. Not to spoil a discussion of that book too much, but I think there is a place for having people who have sort of, uh, you know, taken the whatever pill and, and no longer see themselves as workers in a system, but but see the absurdity and the social construction of it, of it all. And that David Graeber quoted, everything was arranged this way and could easily be made different. Yeah. So that is needed, but it certainly doesn't make uh, an Amazon warehouse not a place where that radical potential could be felt. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like the question is, is there a difference between an intellectual analysis and a vision for a better world? Like, I do think political vision is probably different than political analysis in some ways. Um, And Aronowitz seems pretty convinced that 
expanding the radical imagination that unions embrace is really crucial to reviving the labor movement and the role that intellectuals, worker intellectuals, I think he's also talking about this idea of like organic and organic intellectuals, uh, probably similar to organic leaders. I think he's referring to that, not necessarily people that are like academics that come in and tell everybody the way, but people that are willing <laughs> to like critically look at their workplace and imagine it differently are really important. And it reminds me of this, you know, book that we read a little while back by Stan Weir, Single Jack Solidarity. There's this passing moment in the book. He doesn't expand on it that much in one of his essays, but he does point out that part of the problem for unions, part of the reason that they have narrowed political imaginations is that they became so hierarchical and so bureaucratic that any intellectuals outside the workplace and outside formal organized labor unions had no other entry points and connections to unions except through union officialdom. So only people at the top of unions had any contact and relationship to public intellectuals. They no longer could get to the rank and file. And, and he just mentions this kind of in passing, but says that this is like, one of the issues that has arisen with the highly bureaucratic and top-heavy unions that we have today, uh, and it's a problem. And I think Aronowitz is kind of operating in that same analysis that without the role of public intellectuals, the, with public intellectuals being so detached and divorced from rank-and-file union members um, and, un and organized labor in general, we're going to be kind of stuck in this political vision of reform and contract unionism that's really pretty much a dead end. Mm -hmm. I love the, 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 the less hierarchy and the more participation in a union campaign. Like You know that that's going to help. If you have an organizing committee that is not inviting everyone to their meetings, that does a lot of stuff in secret, uh, and that, that builds skills that aren't shared, right? Like that can be the death blow of a campaign is focusing too much on that small group of workers and not engaging in uh, the rest of people in decisions, hearing what's going on. You know, people are like, we filed for election. Now what's happening, right? Like, what's the plan? One union that I, uh, when I was applying to jobs to be, you know, just loved the labor movement so much and I was applying for jobs at different unions, it was really interesting to see how they all started to structure themselves. And I think what you're getting at is, is thinking about the structure of the union itself. Like if you throw out the org chart, where's the staff and where are the workers and whose decisions are influencing what? You know, the old engineer in me is thinking of a process flow diagram. Like how, how exactly is this contract campaign or bargaining campaign going to work? Who is where and, and who does what? And who, who is in charge of who, like hierarchically? The one union that I interviewed with, they brought me, they invited me to one of their, their training meetings, and there was union staff, SALTs, and rank-and-file workers who were non-SALTs, all in organizing trainings together. And I loved that. It was a, clearly a big Zoom, but they had people from the union, from uh, you know SALTs, who were clearly already involved, and then new people all together. I love the thought of that, especially because so much union work is now primarily through Zoom. It's the same as bargaining. Well, why can't we open up the bargaining Zoom to more than 10 people? 
open bargaining is very effective. It, it, it involves a lot of people and it really animates and educates people on what exactly is going on. It's the same for perhaps union structures and allowing that because you never know, maybe a worker is going to be able to blow y'all's mind, just like, you know, you might hope to blow some people's minds the first time they attend a training. So uh, especially with, with digital access, I think those, those, those doors have got to be broken down or else it's like you said, those people don't get involved and then things get stale and stagnate. Yeah. And I think on some level, that's also where union staff, people that are already in these positions of being union staffers and elected leaders, they're kind of on the hook on this in terms of like, they've got to start giving members more credit and potential would-be members more credit in that they are capable of understanding the intricacies of organized labor and labor yeah. law and whatever and what it means to do collective bargaining or what it means to engage in a strike. Like we've got to start giving people the benefit of the doubt and just start treating people like they're intelligent. And unfortunately, what I have observed is there are many staffers that are kind of just lazy. I think that's really what it is. It's like doing good organizing is hard, it takes a lot of work, but it, and it's easier to just like do everything for workers. But I also think there is this, Joe Burns calls it labor liberalism, but there's this like liberal ideology that's pervasive in staff circles where staff genuinely do think that their role is to go around saving workers and like operating on behalf of workers because workers are too incapable of doing their own work. You know, they're too incapable of governing their own unions and understanding the intricacies and complexities of strategy. So the staffers have to come in and do the work for them. And it's a liberal idea, right? It's like mm -hmm. you think workers are made of glass and you just want to like wrap your arms around them and protect them from harm. It's paternalistic and it's bullshit. And it's like, workers know the risk. You got to be honest with them about it and believe that they're capable of governing their own unions. And honestly, I mean, this is the old saying in a lot of amongst organizers, but the idea is to organize yourself out of a job. Well, people say that, but they clearly don't believe it. But I do think it's important to go in believing like the people that I'm talking to today, even if they're inexperienced with organizing, can become just as effective as me as an organizer and honestly, probably better because they're in the workplace and I'm not. As a yeah. staffer, I'm not in that workplace and I don't care how good I am at a one-on-one -on -one conversation. I know that I can follow the methods to a T, but you get a person inside a workplace that's able to just be real with their coworkers and they are going to be more effective at motivating their coworkers 100 times more often than I am. Like it's just how it is. I'm a I'm a random person. <laughs> the insider, the committee member, they're going to be more effective if you just help them position themselves in a way where they can be successful. There's a push pull, I think, in a lot of labor bureaucracy between right, like the working class, the essential workers. They are always essential. They're heroes. It's the same thing that politicians do. They're, they they are the most important people who have who have you know had so much go on, and they are the vanguard of the new labor party. At the same time, there are a lot of the same folks thinking 
we cannot possibly invite them to write and shape bargaining proposals or to have a, a, a fully transparent open uh, open bargain, or we cannot have these folks directly voting on uh, matters of importance to them uh, or coming up with messaging or, or running the Instagram page for their campaign, right? Like a staffer needs to manage the Instagram and maybe yeah, they can workshop oh it God. with the worker, right? <laughs> you know? Uh, nonsense. Nonsense, but right, like the, the that sort of divide, it's it's it feels like gaslighting to a degree, right? To be like, you are important, you are the lifeblood of this country, but you can't exactly operate this union and you're not really invited to the Zoom where we are going to discuss your future. It, it feels, uh, I don't know what the word is for it, but all I got to say is like, when I'm seeing some of these strikes around the nation, I'm not only seeing strikes against, these are not just strikes against John Deere or uh, here in Seattle, um, the employers, of the Northwest Carpenters Union. A lot of these strikes are simultaneously strikes against the union leadership, uh, voting down the TAs that they are trying to get passed by these folk. And, and I think that that is a dynamic that's really important to pay attention to right now, um, but I think gets, gets glossed over. Yeah, I'm excited about a lot of these, a lot of this activity and seeing workers vote down TAs, tentative agreements. I think that's not a bad thing necessarily. I think that's usually a sign of a good thing <laughs> that workers are willing to say like, this isn't satisfactory. It's not enough. Or we want to keep fighting. And, you know, for all my critiques of labor organizing and unions today, I feel more often positive and optimistic about our prospects than I do negative and cynical. It's just on the podcast uh, it's all cynicism. <laughs> well, that's what talking shop is, right? Like, you right. know, when you meet up with another person in your industry, you never go, you know, actually things are looking pretty up. All right. You know, this is, <laughs> yeah. uh, this is, this is a key part of talking shop with your coworkers or with people in, in your field is, uh, uh, I like the phrase comradely critique, right. Yeah. You know, we're, we're all in this labor movement because we love this weird thing. And we want it to be the best. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we should make a uh, space in a future one of these shop talks where we actually talk about the positive uh, success stories we have, because that's something we probably don't do enough is like actually go through stories of successful campaigns and really talk about what worked. Yeah. I think, comrade, we've been at this for a little while and it's probably time to wrap this up. I don't have any concluding thoughts, but. I like talking shop with you. And I think what we should do is plan a future one of these conversations where we share some success stories. Yeah, let's let's share some things that uh, worked really, really, really well for us. Yeah, that's also just a, you know, a sort of gratitude journal uh, approach. I love it. That's a great idea. Let's do it. Well, I want to say thank you again to Joshua Robinson for the question. It helps spark the whole conversation. And if you want to send any inquiries to Labor Wave Radio, ask questions about organizing, maybe you're stuck in a campaign or would just like a different perspective, go ahead and send those to laborwavenews at gmail.com. You can also get in touch through Twitter, Facebook, all the shit, right? Uh, <laughs> you Google it, you find it. <laughs> yeah. And it, I got to say too, you know, now we're part of the podcast network. 
channelzeronetwork.com. That's like an English language anarchist podcast network. And there's a lot of cool stuff on Channel Zero. So folks should check it out. With that, thanks so much, comrade. Always enjoy the conversation with you. Awesome. Well, it was great being here. Uh, Until we talk again. You're listening to a Channel Zero Network podcast. The Channel Zero Network is a decentralized network of anarchist podcasts, bringing you analysis of current events, media criticism, rebellious music, interviews with academics and authors, how-tos, and so much more. This is The Final Straw Radio, a weekly anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio show broadcasting out of occupied Saligi land in southern Appalachia. Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. What's up, y'all? I'm Pearson, host of Coffee with Comrades. You've been listening to Rebel Steps. I'm your host, Liz. Believe in yourself, trust one another, and get organized. Hello, this is Linda. You're listening to Subversion 1312 on the Channel Zero Network. Whether you are anarcho-curious or a hardened militant, CZN's ever-growing roster of programs has something for you. Head over to channelzeronetwork.com to find out more.